Greeting friends, I'd like to take this opportunity to go over explaining the SPC or secured party creditor process because sometimes people have questions, sometimes people feel that it's overwhelming, etc, etc, etc. So let me just do a service here of breaking it down and just explaining to you because to me it sounds very simple to me it is very simple and uh, people miss the simplicity of what it is if you can't explain what the secured party creditor process is in you know a sentence or you know five or six or seven words or less then in my opinion you are overcomplicating it so let's try to define it in five six seven or eight words or less or at least uh, one sentence or less and then you can marinate on that or you can sit on that or you can process that and you can walk away understanding how simple it is and have a lot of confidence in understanding what you are doing because a lot of people they even sign up and become clients of mine and then they don't understand what they just did and so you know we don't want that we want people to fully understand what they do before they become a client so uh, and that's not to say that they have to become an expert on everything but just to understand exactly what it is that you're doing is important to me before you jump in and do it so the bottom line is is this and then I'm gonna read some supporting material and some further explanation but the bottom line is this your name in capital letters is a trust that was created with your birth certificate so it is a trust another name we can call it is your legal name okay so when we talk about your legal name we're talking about the name on your birth certificate or whatever it was changed into is another modification of it it's the same entity it's like if a corporation changed its name it's still the same corporation it has the same buildings it has the same property it has the same balance sheets tax returns uh, board of directors owners CEO president employees it's all the same nothing changed other than the name that it wants to call itself and be recognized by so if you've had a name change it's immaterial it's the modified or amended name but we're talking about the same entity okay talking about the same entity and it is not a corporation it is a trust there are differences between corporations and trusts there are similarities between corporations and trusts okay so your a trust is basically a entity set up by someone put in control by the next party for the benefit of a third party so party a sets it up party b is given the authority by party a to control the entity for the benefit of party c now some of these parties can overlap in other words party a can also be party b in some instances party b can also be uh, one of party c's if there's multiple party c's and party a can also be party c so that goes into 
you, know, you can look into all that. But that's basically it. It's not. It's not. It doesn't have to be incorporated. It doesn't have to be written in writing. When you write all all the terms and conditions, it's expressing it, in reducing it to writing, and therefore it's called an express trust. When you don't write out and write declaration of trust and write out all the terms and conditions on you know many many pages it's not an express trust it's either a constructive trust or an implied trust so you can google those terms what is a constructive trust what is an implied trust i know we're getting into a lot of detail here and i kind of said that we were just going to keep it simple so just to keep it just to backtrack and keep it very simple you can research these terms further but just to keep it very simple your legal name is for most people who don't run corporations and who don't run, run other trusts and who don't run other entities you know you're not uh, a CEO of um, you know a big fortune 500 company you're, you're not you know the owner of a startup company an internet company like like Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook you don't run any other companies now some of you do and we'll talk about that in a minute but for most people, they don't run any other companies. But they have—they do—they do, in a sense, kind of run their all capital letters legal name or birth certificate name or trust name. All mean the same thing. Okay. So here's the thing, though. You think that you run it. However, the government comes in and regulates you and tells you what to do and taxes you and fines you and then tries to control you and your property and the way that you run it and tells you how you can run it and so forth so you're not really running it so in a trust the legal title is or in a trust the, the the controller right so in a corporation like the one who controls things is kinda like the CEO but they're appointed by and there's a checks and balances in the corporation the CEO is running things on a day-to-day -day basis but they are elected by the board of directors and governed by the board of directors so they can be terminated and fired by the board of directors now if 51 percent of the representation on the board of directors is owned or controlled by the ceo anyway then the ceo is said to have a controlling ownership 51 percent or more or 50.1 percent or more and then obviously if, if if they represent 51 percent of the shares of the company and there's a vote on firing the CEO obviously whatever they say goes because all the other shareholders can only accumulate 49 percent of the vote and if the CEO has 51 percent then you know they're gonna outvote them so they're never gonna fire themselves so you know you see this in lots of instances all the time so anyways, back to trusts. In a trust, it's different. In a trust, there are no shareholders that get to dictate um, the firing of the CEO or anything like that. In a trust, the grantor appoints the trustee and in an, irrevoc in, in an irrevocable trust that can never be reversed. So the grantor is out of the picture and the trustee is there to control or there might be more than one trustees okay so the board of trustees and if it's just one person then you're the only person on the board of trustees but the board of trustees controls and no one is 
having a board meeting and checking on them and regulating them and fire and firing them. However, they work for the beneficiaries and the owners or the shareholders are the beneficiaries. They are the ones that at the end of the day when all the profits are made and then there's a distribution to the owners, you know, which could be very finite. You know, it could it could happen once every 10 years. It could never happen. It could happen at the dissolution of the trust when the trust is dissolved. If the purpose of the trust is to exist for 25 years and there's no, you know, motions and agreements made um, to extend the life of the trust and keep going for another 25 years, then um, that's it. When the trust is over, that's it. You collapse the trust and you pay out everything to the beneficiaries or the shareholders, or you extend it for another 25 years, or it could be um, some instances perpetual. But you can you can look into that. There's a lot of reasons why you can't have it say perpetual on certain types of trusts. Uh, you know, blah 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 blah. This gets into trust law and court cases and how the, you know, uh, the law has molded over the course of time with the with the application of trust in practice. Okay, but anyways, back to this. So the trustee is in control, and I said before, and they're they're working for the beneficiaries, but the beneficiaries do not have control. They cannot have a shareholder meeting and um, tell the trustee what to do. Okay. However, there's some gray area. In some instances, they may be able to have rights to monitor, you know, review the balance sheet, get a statement of how well the trust is doing and how much monies or benefits they're entitled to. In some instances, it's not. How do you know what rights the beneficiaries have? It's all determined by whatever is put in the declaration of trust by the person who created the trust, which is the grantor. So the grantor and the trustee have a contract okay by the way another word for grantor is creator settlor or trustor so if you see those terms trustor settlor creator grantor they're all synonymous they all mean the same thing so when you're reading about trusts you might see the you know the word trustor the trustor with or at the end trustor creates the trust puts the control in the hands of the trustee T-R-U-S-T-E-E. -E. Okay, so those terms are different and make sure that you try to notice that they're different. To make the clear distinction, I always use grantor and trustee when I'm explaining it, not trustor and trustee and things like that. But you can use whatever the terms are synonymous. So anyways, the bottom line is that your legal name, the name that you've been using that's on all your documents, bank accounts, driver's licenses, applications, everything that you've been doing, your whole life okay now whatever now let me ask you let me ask, it's what you've been doing in commerce what you've been doing in contracting with the United States corporation what you've been doing to receive any currency whether it be in US dollar you know funds or whether it be in another denomination of currency everything you've been doing and every title to property that you've been having has been in your um, your legal name your legal trust name. Now, you might say, well, you know, well, what's the difference between me and my legal name and any other name? Well, you might respond to other names. You might have a significant other 
domestic partner, uh, com um, you know, comrade, com uh, you know, um, lover, housemate, whatever. You might have somebody that calls you sweetie, right? You might have somebody that calls you honey. You might have kids that call you poppy. You know, you might have your lover that calls you poppy. You might have people in your life, you have a dog that might call you woof, woof, woof. You might have people in your life that call you a variety of different things. They could even call you, you know, if your legal birth name says um, John Smith on it, you might have friends that call you, um, you know, uh, Steve or Dominique or Chris or Christopher. But that might be just another nickname that you have or another pen name or, you know, a lot of people write books and or do things in the world and, you know, you know, um, uh, actors, actresses use in all types of situations, use other names, right? But that's not their legal name, okay? But uh, especially in private, you probably have a lot of different names that you respond to, okay? But that's different than your legal birth name. When it, com when it comes to owning property and having funds and things like that, you need some entity. It doesn't have to be your legal birth name, but it has to be a it, it, it has to be an expressed um, legal entity, right? That has documentation and things like that. It could be a corporation. Corporation doesn't have photo ID. Corporation is an entity. There are other formation documents to prove the veracity of um, that corporation and that the deposits and you know of money, contracts, owning titles to property are all done with proper you know certifications. So to prevent fraud, so that people can't just go out there and say, "Oh, I'm so and so corporation," uh, you know. Um, you know, let you know. I'm going to buy this house on behalf of so and so corporation. Well, you have to prove that you're an authorized representative of that corporation, and you have to prove. You know, you might have to prove that the board of directors made a resolution to allow you to make the purchase of that home on behalf of that corporation, or to sign a document giving a lien hold interest, or uh, to deposit a certain amount of money into a bank account, or to open up a bank account for the corporation, and to be a signer on that bank account and to have a debit card issued in the name and a checkbook issued in the name of the corporation with your you as an as an agent being able to use the ATM deposit withdraw transfer money etc 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 so you know there's there's lots of um, ways that you can you know operate in the world and deposit checks and sign contracts and do lots of different things, but m most people in their quote personal individual quote personal life, most people are only operating one trust, for which is their legal name, to do all these things in. Now you can operate as many as you wish. You can operate as many trusts as you like, and you can operate as many corporations as you like. And what's the benefit of that? Well, the benefit of that is you can't rob Peter to pay Paul, right? So if uh, 
you know, uh, there's a lawsuit against, you know, so-and-so corporation or so-and-so LLC or so-and-so trust, well, they can't go after one of the other trusts or one of the other corporations that you might just so happen to be involved in if there's, um, you know, liability that is incurred from one entity. You keep all the entities, you know, separate. So that's why people form you know, limited liability corporations. And on construction sites, every single builder, you know, like a Donald Trump or these different, you know, um, I mean, he has the Trump organization or any construction company, okay, or, you know, etc. They set up a brand new LLC usually, or corporation, usually it's an LLC, <clears throat> for every construction job. And when the construction job is done, the company is dissolved, and all the money is given to the owner, to the to the owners, and that's it. So the corporation is dissolved; it can't get any lawsuits. It can't get service of process of any lawsuits. It's over. It's done. So that's a very smart business move. Um, now, obviously, you can't do that with your legal name trust unless you. Uh, um, well, actually, you can do that with your legal name trust, but that's not the purpose of this um, of this recording. Most people are not going to want to do that with their legal name trust because they, you know, don't they need they that's the most um, easy thing to <clears throat> contract with that you already have identification and you already have all these different things going on with it. The bottom line with this is that the SPC process puts you as the trustee over your own trust instead of what you are or what you have been your whole life. What you have been your whole life was just a beneficiary. And what you have been your whole life, again, the beneficiary of a trust is not like a shareholder. And even if you were a shareholder and you were able to you know, uh, vote, you know, you're just one of many shareholders. Right? If you own shares in Facebook stock, you have probably a less than 1%, right? And you've got hundreds of thousands of people that own Facebook stock. So you're going to go to the shareholder meeting or you're going to appoint a proxy to go to the meeting and enter a vote for you. And if you want to go and, you know, uh, mandate that Mark Zuckerberg file a certain protocol, uh, follow a certain protocol or that he be fired entirely and replaced with someone else, well, it's not going to work because you own less than 1% of the voting shares. You need to get a 51% of the vote. So <clears throat> even if you were a beneficiary, then brings up the question, do you have 51% interest or more? But as I said, in a trust, it doesn't matter. If you have 100% beneficial ownership, you still can't tell the trustee what to do unless, um, well, actually... You can't. You might have some um, ability to get information on a regular basis about the, how the trust is performing, but you can't control what the trustee does unless now a beneficiary can sue a trustee if he accuses he or she or the entity, whatever, whoever the beneficiary is. You know, a beneficiary can be another corporation, could be another LLC, could be another trust, right? So. If you're a beneficiary or you represent an entity that is a beneficiary and you believe that the trustee is committing fraud, then you can do certain things. 
If you believe that they're stealing from your trust, then you can do certain things. If you believe that or have right, you know, right to believe or reason to believe um, that they are, you know, committing um, fraud, usury, negligence, you know, other wrongdoings, you know, other torts, other wrongdoings, then you may be able to do things. You can initiate a lawsuit and you can, we can prove, you know, go through a discovery process, go to trial, prove in a court that they are doing wrongdoing. And then therefore the court will probably order that they be removed as a trustee, blah, blah, blah. However, before you bring any lawsuit into court, you have to look at jurisdiction. What's the jurisdiction of the court? I mean, what's the jurisdiction of the trust and the court, okay? For the, the first thing that needs to be established before you move forward is jurisdiction. And in every lawsuit, every complaint that you'll read, you can go up online and find ways to pull down lawsuits and, you know, read them. Every lawsuit establishes jurisdiction in the first few paragraphs before it moves on forward and starts to lay out the facts, lay out the case, lay out the conclusion, the facts, conclusions of law, the accusations, and then, you know, makes an accusation or makes a claim or shows, uh, you know, evidence of a claim and then allows the other party the opportunity to answer and respond or to admit the facts and then move forward for a conclusion in the lawsuit, which would be a judgment. Right, so the jurisdiction is important, and when you review whether it's a civil case or whether it's a criminal case or whether whatever it is, okay, whether it's in statutory law based, um, common law based, now the plaintiff always has the right to decide the law form. So the plaintiff can always come and say, "We're doing this under." Uh, common law as per blah 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 or we're doing this lawsuit under private international law or we're doing this lawsuit under the laws of the state of the corporate state of California okay so the plaintiff always has a right to decide what law form what jurisdiction this is moving under okay but they also have the burden of proving jurisdiction so when they file the case and they say we have jurisdiction based on blah 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 again whether it's civil or whether it's criminal. And at any point in time, the defendant or the respondent that is responding to the lawsuit, trying to defend themselves, um, probably trying to get the case thrown out if they see any, you know, any loopholes that they can get the case thrown out early on, perhaps. They look at jurisdiction, they say, we can get this thrown out because of jurisdiction. This court doesn't have jurisdiction. Okay, now subject matter jurisdiction, um, or just on a face jurisdiction, what the courts will look at jurisdiction a lot of times, and they'll ignore a lot of the other types of jurisdiction, like in personam jurisdiction, unless you specifically raise that you're challenging in personam jurisdiction, like in a criminal case, and you're a sovereign, and you're claiming in personam jurisdiction is uh, not established. They're always going to say, oh, we have jurisdiction because the incident happened in this geographic location, and they're going to make you sound like, you know, that that's the only issue related to jurisdiction and obviously it's not you also have in rem jurisdiction in personam jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction okay so you know territorial jurisdiction is a part of subject matter jurisdiction okay 
So they're trying to say, oh, we have territorial jurisdiction because of the geography. This happened here. It's just a way so that courts don't fight over each other. The federal government doesn't fight over the states, doesn't fight over the county, doesn't fight over the city as to who's going to proceed with the with the with the with the um, with the charge. Okay, and so that's part of what they focus on and what they talk about is um, well, hey, this happened in the state of Texas, so we have jurisdiction, not the state of Oklahoma, and so they establish jurisdiction or this happened in this county instead of the neighboring county so we have jurisdiction or these um, consumers or these respondents or these defendants live in so-and-so county so this particular court has jurisdiction and it's a you know civil monetary loss uh, a lawsuit for monetary compensation monetary damages exceeding twenty five thousand dollars or uh, less than $25,000 or exceeding $10,000 or less than $10,000. They have small claims court has jurisdiction over any matters, you know, any local matters like that, you know, less than either 5000 or 10000 or whatever it is. You got to look at the courts in the local area. It's different in different, in different countries. And every state is its own country. You have 50 plus countries in the you know there are, there are 50 states or nation states in America so you know and then you have DC and you have Puerto Rico Guam all these different places so there's actually more than 50 nation states but all those countries all those nation states all those states have different criteria for you know what court you've got small claims courts you've got circuit courts superior courts um, Supreme Court, you got different places, and they all kind of establish where they draw the lines of which court has jurisdiction over what types of matters. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the dollar amount being sued for if it's civil, but there's other situations as well. And then you got the federal government, you need to have, um, or not the federal government, but to go to federal court, you need to have specific type of jurisdiction and that's the purpose of another audio you can just go on google right now and you can type in um, you know you know what gives jurisdiction to open up a federal lawsuit you know you can type something in like that or different variations of that and you can find the answers and you can do some reading and doing some research anyways back to um, back to you know back to the trusts <clears throat> so beneficiaries can't sue trustee unless there's some fraud or some negligence or uh, something that is an exception to, um, you know, uh, being held harmless from liability because a trustee is usually going to be, you know, not or even in a corporation, a CEO of a company is usually going to be not liable personally. You can't sue his personal all capital letters trust name. You know, you can't sue Mark Zuckerberg if you think Facebook wronged you. You're supposed to sue Facebook directly and there's only a couple of particular courts that you can do that in based on subject matter jurisdiction but you can't sue Mark Zuckerberg directly unless he's committed fraud um, and if you're a shareholder of Facebook then that gives you additional potential rights to sue whereas a consumer probably can't you know has a less likelihood of suing suing the um, executives directly but if you're a shareholder and there's something that they're doing that's wrong, then you have an additional possibility of ways that you can sue the trustee or the CEO in a corporation uh, personally. So 
I think this gives a little more context to trusts and the different players involved. But the bottom line is right now, uh, most people that have a birth certificate and have a legal name are um, not the trustees of their, of their own all capital letters named trust. You are only a beneficiary right now. And you're not the only beneficiary, okay? The state of, you know, whatever, wherever you live, the state of Texas is one of the beneficiaries as well. Don't they, don't they get state income tax? Or maybe Texas doesn't have a state income tax, I don't know, but there's like six states that don't have state income taxes like um, uh, Florida, Wyoming, there's a bunch of others you can look it up. So, you know, let's just say California, that's the easy one. If you live in California, you know, California charges are pretty high. State income tax, I think it's like 10% for most people that earn a certain income. Uh, New York too as well. So, you know, not only do you pay federal income tax, but you pay state income tax. So the state is a beneficiary of your legal name trust because at some point over the course of your of the of the year or of your life, from this all capital letters trust operating, the state of California or the state of New York is getting some money. And they're also getting money from 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 your activity, even if you didn't owe any state income taxes, there's lots of other things that go on. Okay, um, there's excise taxes put on fuel at the pump, at the gas pump. So if you use um, gasoline to pump up your car or fuel to heat your home, um, there are taxes that are put on these things and they go to the state as well. And the state also provides services as far as highways and maintenance of highways and things like that. So then there's another trust within a trust and they're actually benefiting you know millions of people who use the roads so those would be beneficiaries of the state of california trust um or state of california uh corporation and um there would be um you know potentially millions of unnamed uh beneficiaries of that situation of the state um, hiring people to fix up the roads okay but there's also people, administrators, and people that work full-time for the state of California, and they get a salary and bonuses and all sorts of different things. The governor, you know, I, I, I don't know how much the governor of California makes in a year, but his whole salary is paid for by the taxpayers, okay? Same thing with the president of, the, you know, the, the, the federal government, the United States of America, okay? So there's lots of beneficiaries to that thing running, but... There's also lots of executives that get a salary and get a cut. So those people are like the trustees, the people involved in this public trust that everybody benefits from the roads being, you know, the potholes being fixed in the roads. But there are trustees who get a cut of running and managing and administering this thing called the state of California. But it's the same thing for your legal name. Your legal name is not much different. You're just a beneficiary. You get to ride on the road that doesn't have the pothole, so to speak, in your own situation. So what do they do? They take taxes for this, that, 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 and the other thing, fines, fees, regulations. You want to you own something. Every time you make a purchase, you have to pay a sales tax. You have to pay a title transfer tax. Boats, homes, auto, everything. Okay, and even... Um, Currency, every time you 
own or become the new owner of currency, you have to pay a tax. That's called an income tax. Okay, so you are just a beneficiary of your all capital letters legal name trust. And how do we know that? Because if you were the true trustee, you would be the only controller dictating what goes on related to your legal name trust. You'd be the only you know, executive or if <laughs> if if there were other trustees then you would be in communication with them and have board meetings and have to come to a vote or come to a consensus. That doesn't happen. So what happens? What is happening? What's going on with your legal name trust? Right? They are the legal title holders of everything. This is why when you register an automobile, they have the MSO, the Manufacturer Statement of Origin, which is the legal title. You're registering everything to them. You're getting permission, you're putting in applications, and the trustee looks at it and they say, okay, beneficiary wants something, puts in an application, all right, we have a duty and obligation to perform and give the beneficiary you know, what he, what he asked for, but we're gonna take our cut and we're gonna regulate it, and we're gonna tax them, we're gonna send building inspectors out, and we're gonna have them pulled over the side of the road every time, uh, every so, you know, so often, or give police, local police, uh, traffic police authority to pull you over and check that your tires are inflated and check that you're wearing your seatbelt and ask for your license and registration, ask you all sorts of other questions and give you fines and tickets and make you appear in court. So they're, they're dictating how you use the you know the benefits that they're giving you they own everything related to this trust but then they're giving back like 75 percent of it to you and they're saying we're going to take our cut with all these taxes and keep the other 25 percent or whatever those numbers are and you know we're going to also regulate how you use it we're going to in you know infringe on your privacy and you know and just come and do whatever we want and we can also change how we regulate you using the benefits of your stuff of the of the stuff of the trust so you see how you're never really the full you know controller of any of your property including money including property including your offspring including your kids okay the government only leases to you right the capacity to use your kids, your money, your bank accounts. This is why they can freeze your bank account at any time they want on suspicion without, you know, proving you did anything wrong in a court of law because they're the trustees, they're the administers, and they can pull you into court anytime that they want to. So are you starting to see how the government is the trustees and you are just a beneficiary of your all caps legal name trust? Okay. So this is a situation that people are trying to get away from. People are trying to become sovereign. So the way that we do that is with the secured party creditor process. Um, among many things that we're doing with that process, just in a simple way, the bottom line, and in the beginning I said that we could narrow this down into like five or six or seven or eight words or less. Let's see if we can do that here. I would say that this process is you reorganizing, keyword, reorganizing 
your existing legal name trust. That's it. I think that's six or seven words or, or less. Reorganizing. And why is it reorganizing? Because you're not creating, and, and it's, you know, this is just kind of a, maybe something that was looked over, but I have a lot of clients that's, you know, sometimes they're doing this and it's overwhelming and they're asking, why are we creating a trust or what's the purpose? Why do I need to create a trust? And I say to them, no, 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 no. You, we, there must be some misconfusion here. You're not creating a trust. You're reorganizing an existing trust. Your legal name trust was already created on your birth date. Okay? So we're not creating a brand new trust, right? Whatever your name is, John Doe, you know, uh, Cindy Smith, whatever your name is that you were born with, with a birth certificate, that trust already exists, right? That's undoubtable. You've been using it your whole life. The government's been in control of it your whole life. So what we're doing, and if you've got a name change, it's still the same trust. Nothing has changed other than the name that you want to be that you want it to be called got approved by the trustees. And then you assumed using that as well. So <clears throat> five words, six words or less, you're reorganizing your legal name. Trust. Reorganizing. Is that one word or two words? Let's say it's one word. Reorganizing my, because you would say, you know, if you're saying this out loud, you would say my, reorganizing my legal name trust. Five words. Five words or less. So if I ask you, hey, pop quiz, do you even understand the process that you're doing or that you're about to do or that you're calling and saying, I want to sign up and I want to do this SPC process, I may ask some of you in five words, what are you doing? And you shall punctually say, reorganizing my legal name trust. That's it simplistically. And there's lots of other things that are done as layers on top of that that are more advanced, but that's simple. If you don't know the foundation, if you don't know the simplicity of what you're doing, let's just focus on getting you to understand what it is that you're doing because that makes it not overwhelming for you. That makes it you're clear, you're confident in moving forward, you're not hesitate to, you know, to get over any sort of hesitation. And I want you to understand what you're doing. And you want you to understand what you're doing probably more than I want you to understand what you're doing. But I don't know, I care a lot about people understanding what they're doing. Maybe I care more than some people. I don't know. But <clears throat> that's what we're doing. Now let me read this letter. One of the letters that we send in the process after we've reorganized the trust and filed certain public notices and so on and so forth or recorded certain public notices there's something called a notification of record that we send to the birth state and the state that you live at now that probably has a lot of dealings with you a lot of trusteeship a lot of administration a lot of control over your legal name trust has been, you know, you've got property registered through it, you've got bank accounts set up there, you've got a mailing address set up there. Whatever the state that you live at now, you've got employment contracts there. Whatever situation that, whatever state that you're 
doing the most activity in or that you are domiciled in or that you deal with. That state plus your birth state need to be notified. Why does your birth state need to be notified? Because they have the original, that's where this was all started. Your legal name trust was created there. So you gotta send the state that you are dealing with now that you live at, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and the birth state and Washington DC and the entire auditors, the IRS are the auditors and tax collector, everything that's going on between transferring property and all these different things. So you need to notify them as well. So you're notifying four entities, the birth state, the state you're living at now. Now, if they're the same, then that's it. Then you don't need to notify both of them, okay? The Washington DC, for the U.S. corporation to give them notice and the um, the IRS, okay, who are the financial accountants and auditors of everything and keeping track of everything and who owns what and blah, blah, blah. So when you reorganize your trust, don't you think it would be a good idea to tell them to put them on notice so that they can adjust their accounting, tax you or your trust differently, send, you know, notices differently, blah, 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 right? So these are the four main departments that you need to, to notify. And these are this is a letter that we send out to notify them kind of after the majority of your process is done. And once you have reorganized your trust, taken control, uh, you know, after you're a bona fide trustee over your trust and secured party. See, secured parties is just another audio. It's another term. It means something different than, you know, you're a trustee, and there's another layer of what we're doing on there. It has to do with putting a having a security agreement and putting a secured lien hold interest over all of the trust property that is leaned by the living man, whatever name you want to call yourself in private. Okay, again, the honey, the sweetheart, the whatever that doesn't own anything and doesn't, you know, have any titles in its name or whatever, the private name that you say to yourself in your private home, but once you leave the house and you buy buy things or do banking or whatever, it never shows up. Okay? That private name, that private living man that never gets into any contracts, that name well, it can get into contracts, but it usually gets into never no contracts, especially with the United States corporation or the state corporation or any sort of business or corporate stuff. That private name, the living man, this the um, the living man or woman has a lien hold interest over all of the all capital letters, trust names, property, past, present, future, forever, okay? That's end of security agreement, and that's posted on a UCC1, where you post liens, which are consensual contracts that are signed by both parties. A lien is a consensual contract signed by both parties. So you, the living man, is signing a contract with your all capital letters trust. So you're kind of signing it with yourself, but you, the living man, is signing a contract with your all capitalist trust, and you're putting a lien, 100 million, a billion, infinite, whatever you want to put, um, although you can't really put infinite, you have to put it some amount. 
So 100 million, whatever. So you put that lien over that, and that's kind of a, a different thing that's going on here. First, the first thing you're, I really want to get into your head, though, and the purpose of this audio is to cover that you're reorganizing your legal name trust. Boom, that's it. Let that sit, understand what that is, read the documents 10 times and understand that that's what you're doing in the first phase of the process. After that, later, yeah, there's a security agreement, there's a lien, there's UCCs, there's lots of th other things that you're doing. You're also <laughs> setting up a fiduciary contract with the Secretary of Treasury that allows you to discharge certain debts that's the purpose of another audio. We're not even there yet in most people's understanding. I'm trying to just get people to understand the five words. You're reorganizing your legal name trust. That's it. So let me read to you uh, this document that solidifies, reinforces that concept. Later on, after we reorganize our legal name trust and we become a registered secured party creditor over that trust, recorded on a UCC, done a bunch of things, done the um, contract with uh, fiduciary contract with the Secretary of Treasury in Puerto Rico who is uh, administering the accounts for the United States Corporation. You know, all these different things. After that, we do something called the notification of record. And this really drill home the bottom line of what this whole process, uh, the, the foundation, the most important element, the first component of this whole process, which is reorganizing your legal name trust. So here we go, notification of record. So you're sending it to, where are you sending it to? There's four places, birth state, state you live at now or have any significant financial dealings with in the last couple of years or so, Washington DC and the IRS, and you're sending them a notification of record. So two would be, you're doing four letters, so each one is to Secretary of State, your birth state, the other one is to Secretary of State, the state you live at now, the other one is to IRS, the other one is to Washington, D.C. From you, regarding accounts or trusts under account or sub-account number, your Social Security number, and your birth certificate numbers. Okay, that's the title. You're sending them a notice in regards to any accounts or trusts under the account or sub-account numbers, birth certificate, and social security numbers. Does that make sense? And what you're saying is, dear Secretary of State Record Keeper, or dear the IRS, right, or dear Washington, D.C., who we address, or there's certain states that are... that. For example, Hawaii or Guam or Puerto Rico, they some of these places don't have Secretary of States. They have uh, lieutenant governors who fulfill the same capacity. So you might say if you were sending this to Hawaii because you live there now or were born there, you would say, dear lieutenant, you know, uh, or dear, I guess you could say dear secretary of state record keeper but you would address it to the lieutenant governor and there's other states that are called secretary of the commonwealth you know pennsylvania is a commonwealth state so they're called secretary of the commonwealth so you might address it dear secretary of the commonwealth record keeper but for most people you're going to address that dear secretary of state record keeper until so here's the meat of the letter until recently I was unaware 
that there were affairs being managed on my behalf without my knowledge or consent that have been left improperly tended to with atrocious results. So basically, you're telling them, hey, I kind of realized that I have been a beneficiary and you guys have been regulating, controlling, and profiting off of this trust, supposedly for my benefit, um, but without my knowledge or consent. I didn't know that this was a trust being managed on my behalf, right? You didn't know when it was set up because you were a baby, right? And you didn't know when you were one-year-old, two-years-old, five-years-old, ten-years-old, you waited until now, you're 50 something years old, you're 40, 30 something years old, most of you people, right? And now you're finally realizing, wow, my whole life there's been a trust being managed on my behalf, right? So you have to tell them that this, that recently you became aware that this was going on, you know, without your knowledge and without your consent. Until recently, I was unaware that there were affairs being managed on my behalf without my knowledge or consent that have been left improperly tended with atrocious results. So what does that mean? It means that the people that are running it are, you're claiming, improper or it's being improper tended to. Now it has come to my attention that, and then there's six bullet points. Matters are not being handled equitably. What does equitable mean? Fairly. Mad number two, matters are not being handled with efficiency. Number three, in many respects, matters are not being taken care of at all. Number four, usurpation of funds is occurring. Number five, there's rampant fraud and deceit. Number six, position of trustee has been left vacant or properly attenuated. Position of trustee has been left vacant or properly attenuated. So, <clears throat> definition of attenuated is weakened in force or effect unnaturally thin um, look at some other definitions reduced in value or force reduced in force or value or amount or degree to weaken or to diminish okay so you're saying that the position of trustee has been left vacant Definition of vacant is not filled, having or showing no intelligence or interest. Okay, so you are stating, you're also stating that there's fraud. So in order to remove a trustee, there you must accuse it of him or her uh, of committing fraud. Okay, I had somebody say, oh, well, this is, I don't want to accuse the state of committing fraud, blah, blah, blah. You can't just say, oh, I don't like what's going on, and therefore I would like to remove you as a trustee and put me in place as a trustee. 
you can't just do that, right? The shareholders of a corporation can't just say, oh, we don't like this. It needs to be done properly. The beneficiaries of a trust don't have any say unless there's fraud. So you must say that. So you can't water down and not say that there's fraud going on, okay? So we continue with this. I have waived beneficial position and interest to take a position of trustee to manage the affairs of the trust, your all capital letters, legal name, copyright, and full control forth hence as indicated and identified by the account numbers above. Because there's many people with different names. I mean, there's many people with the same name, right? That might, you know, when Secretary of State of California types in, they get this letter and they type your name in. There's many people with the same name. So you have to use the birth certificate numbers and social security numbers or number. <clears throat> I have waived beneficial position. So when you send this notice out, you have to have already done this. You can't send this letter out prematurely and say you've done something that you haven't done. So that's the point of the original trustee or the original trust meeting in the beginning, which is the first step before you even register, you know, do uh, you know a security agreement and UCC one and all the different things before you do any of that. Setting up a um, fiduciary contract with the Secretary of Treasury of Puerto Rico before you do any of that stuff, you have to reorganize your trust. How do you reorganize your trust? You call a meeting to order. You have a meeting. You make an intention. How did they create the trust of the, you know, the constant, the original constitution of the United States of America? Or, or the, actually the original articles of uh, confederation so that all the individual states can be their own nations but have a, a pact and a contract to support each other and to give the people freedom and sovereignty. How did they do that? They just had a meeting. How do you do anything? You have a meeting. The most important thing to create anything, the first starting point to create and form a corporation, to form a country, to form a trust, to make a purchase, to execute a sale, you know, whatever, right? You have a meeting. Well, first you have an idea, right? And you decide that you want to do something and then you call a meeting to order, right? So they called the meeting to order. They had they called people down and they created all the different states and they signed these articles of, corp of uh, confederation. Later on, they did the uh, constitution. Okay, they had another meeting. They had another trust meeting. They said, oh, we have to do something extra now. And they formed the constitution. So, <clears throat> You are basically, everything that you do, pretend you're mimicking creating your own country. You're mimicking creating your own government because literally that's what you're doing. Your own trust is your own country. It is your own government. It's a miniature nation, okay? And who is governed by your miniature nation? You, your family, and your kids, or you might have other parties that are involved too as well. You might have other people that are beneficiaries of it that are, you know, in um, your nation. You're forming your own country and nation. It's very, very, very powerful stuff. But I hope that you see that that's what you're doing because this is private law. This is common law. This is private law. Your trust here 
There's no regulation. There's no um, asking for permission. There's no... Its existence is not contingent upon the government recognizing its existence. Its existence is self-evident. Self-evident, don't they? Don't they? Didn't the founders, the founding fathers, say, "We find these truths to be self-evident"? Okay. Now, whenever there's a country that's formed, and they say, "Hey, we find these truths self-evident. We're breaking, you know, we're free, and we're breaking away from the king and finding our own country, and this is our document." That's like their trust declaration document. The Declaration of Trust is the first document, and the Articles and later the Constitution were trust declarations. The Declaration of Independence really was the first one, right? And then they said, okay, now we need to organize a trust meeting and really formalize all the terms and all the conditions, and then they continued on that. So they had trust meetings to form their own country. However, just because you do this, Again, it doesn't mean that the king is going to immediately recognize your sovereignty. Didn't they say, no, we don't recognize your independence. We're going to send our troops over to fight and shoot at you and kill you and try to get you to surrender and sign a treaty that you're not sovereign. So don't think that the secured party creditor process or this reorganizing your own trust process makes you invincible. I still just recommend to people to blend in and lay low and don't be noticed and just skate through life without getting without winding up in court hopefully but if you're in a situation or you expect a situation or you want the protections just to feel protected if you get into a situation where someone tries to drag you into court civil criminal whatever you have all this foundation laid and then you can flex the muscle and then you can win and there's case law that absolutely supports that you can win your position that you are sovereign and that you are your own, you know, your trust is under your own jurisdiction and it cannot be regulated and so forth by, um, by anyone else that you did not grant or cede authority to. Okay. So your declaration of trust is your own founding of your own nation, your own country, basically. And you're making yourself like the president of it. There you go. And you're creating the um, you know the um, you're in the declaration of trust you're creating all the terms and conditions of what you can do at a later date just like how the Constitution says you know this is what the government can do at a later date and this is what they can't do at a later date they can always go and have meetings in Congress and put resolute, you know, they can vote on whatever that they want, but they can't infringe upon our right to bear arms and our right to free speech and our right to due process and blah, 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 blah. So all those terms were concrete. The Declaration of Trust is a concrete document. You can't do anything contrary to the Declaration of Trust, just like you can't do anything contrary to the Constitution. They can try to. But it'll get it can get overturned later on if someone causes a big enough of a stink about it. One of the beneficiaries of the Constitution, one of we the people, someone causes a big enough of a stink about it and says, "No, 
I don't want my right to firearms to be, I'm going to, I'm going to fight that in the courts. And it goes all the way through the courts, ultimately winds up at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is the checks and balances. The Supreme Court says, yeah, that violates the Constitution. So they will say that that's null and void, and it never was valid. Any attempt by the government to infringe upon a right to bear arms or due process or free speech or freedom of religion is null and void ab initio from the beginning. The Supreme Court will determine that at some point years later. Okay, why? Because the trust known as the United States of America cannot violate its original founding documents. Okay, so everyone talks about, oh, that's unconstitutional because it's not in the Declaration of Trust. So you cannot, you know, you can amend the Declaration of Trust, but how do you know how to amend the Declaration of Trust? Whatever it says in the Declaration of Trust. So whatever it says in the Constitution, here's the ways that we can amend the Constitution. It says it in there. And then you can follow what it says of how to amend it. You can't just make up your own ways and theories about what constitutes having the authority to amend it. So it's the same thing with your Declaration of Trust. Whatever's in there about how you can amend it, there you go. As a general, in, in, in our private declaration of trust for your legal name, our general standard run-of-the-mill cut-and-paste trust language is that the board of trustees can amend the declaration of trust at its will upon a consensus by the board of trustees. Simple as that. There's no reason to make it more complicated than that. Okay, um, <clears throat> or you can edit it and say whatever you want, or add whatever add whatever words or commas or periods for whatever clarity that you want, or whatever modification that you want based on what you want to do. Okay, so now the cool thing about this is is when you set up your own, when you again you're not setting up a brand new trust. When you reorganize your existing trust, you're following the motions of what documents you need and what thing you know you need to have an idea then you make a decision that you want to have the meet you know you want to set up the trust then you call to you know you have a meeting and you invite people then you call the meeting to order and you you know you go through everything so the same way that you're going through all that and all the documents that are needed you're learning how to set up a trust brand new. So if you, after you were done with the secured party pro whole process and you process it and you read it a few times and you take a breath and you, it doesn't become so overwhelming to you and you get it, you can at a later time set up as many trusts as you want. You just been through the whole process. You know what needs to be done, right? Decide who you want to be on your trust, what you, the name that you want to call your trust and just go back to these documents and do the same motions again. Edit and delete the name, the legal name, John Doe from the top of the header of all the documents or in various places in, in inside the documents and put the name of whatever trust you want, whatever name you want. So let's say that you wanted to set up a, after you're done with this whole process, let's say you wanted to set up another trust and you wanted to call it, uh, you know, Sunshine World Trust. For some reason, I always use that generic example. <laughs> but let's say that you wanted to set up 
a trust called Sunshine World Trust. Why do you want to set up Sunshine World Trust? I don't know. I mean, you already have a trust here, but let's say that you wanted someone you wanted to open up a bank account and have someone pay you and write their write the checks or the money orders or have on their credit card statements that come up Sunshine World Trust as opposed to coming up your legal birth certificate name. I completely understand that. So this is one of the number one reasons why maybe later on when you're done with the foundation and you're done with your sovereignty and you're done with your learning about trusts, getting involved, seeing and experiencing the motions of setting of setting up a brand new trust. Again, your legal name trust is not setting up a brand new trust. It's reorganizing your existing one, but the same motions that you do are required coincidentally for setting up any other brand new trusts. Okay? So if you wanted to set up a brand new trust, pick the name, pick who you want to be the grantor, trustees, and beneficiaries, and there you go. The same thing. Have a meeting, pick the people, declaration of trust, meeting minutes, the whole, and that's it. You don't do UCCs. You don't send things to IRS. You don't send things to Secretary of Treasury of Puerto Rico. You don't. You know, it's not. You're not doing the full secured party creditor process and all its motions. You know, you're just doing the trust motions and documents, okay? And yeah, you're getting an EIN number through the IRS if you want to bank in the United States, but you don't need to. If you want to just accept gold and silver privately, or you want to bank in Europe, or you want to bank in South America, or you want to do Bitcoin, or you want to do something else, then you don't need an EIN number from the IRS, okay? It's only if you want to do banking in the United States, you're going to need an EIN number. So... Again, the legal name trust was created on your birth date. But if you want to set up other trusts, just mostly just for the name situation, there might be other reasons as well, but that's not the topic of this conversation. Let's just get back to you know the, the, the main topic, okay? So in this letter that you're sending to the Secretary of State and elsewhere, you're telling them, until recently, I was unaware that there were affairs being managed on my behalf without my knowledge or consent that had been left prop improperly tended with atrocious results. It has come to my attention that, you know, there's fraud, position of trustees left vacant or properly attenuated, blah, blah, blah. And then you say, please return all... Oh, no, 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 I skipped a sentence. I have waived beneficial position and interest to take a position of trustee to manage the affairs of the trust whatever your legal name is, John Doe Trust, or just John Doe, all capital letters. I wouldn't put the word trust there. I would just put John Doe, all capital letters. And I have way beneficial position and interest to take a position of trustee to manage the affairs of the trust, your legal name in caps, and full control forth hence as indicated and identified by the account numbers above. Please return all information to the address above if you have any on hand or is in your care to the trustee. Because earlier in the document, you're telling them that you're the trustee. All others are now barred from handling affairs in regards to your legal name in all caps. All contracts that are in existence for the trust are to be returned to the trustee within 30 days for management or shall be considered vitiated 
Nunk Pro Tunk Void from Inception by the Trust Forth Hence. Your prompt cooperation is generally appreciated. So, <clears throat> if you Google vitiated, it says to spoil or impair the quality or efficiency of, or to destroy or impair the legal validity of. So you're nullifying or canceling the legal validity. All contracts that are in existence for the trust are to be returned to the trustee within 30 days for management or shall be considered vitiated or nullified or canceled. Nunc pro tunc, which is Latin for now for then, void from inception. So from day one, from your birth date, it's all canceled like it was never there to begin with. That's what that means. Your prompt cooperation is greatly appreciated. And then the last paragraph, furthermore, this and all pertinent documentation has already been filed as a public record under necessity in the commercial registry of the state of whatever state you did your UCC filing in under filing number, whatever your UCC filing number is. This is notice and acceptance via your receipt of this mailing. If you feel this notice is in any way in error or disagree with the change in position, the trustee beneficiary swap, if you feel this notice is in any way in error or you disagree with the change in position, please feel free to rebut this notice with your concerns within 30 days or it will stand as fact prima facie. So rebut is to claim or prove that some other accusation is false, okay, or to repel something. So if they don't rebut what you stated in here, for the time being, it'll be legal understanding of the parties that it's true and it's correct, right? That's called <clears throat> prima facie, based on the first impression, accepted as correct until proved otherwise, okay? So that's a legal concept, accepted as correct until proven otherwise. So if you feel this notice is in any way in error or disagree with the change in position, please feel free to rebut this notice with your concerns within 30 days or it will stand as fact until proven otherwise. Notice to agent is notice to principal, notice to principal is notice to agent. That means that the secretary of state of, who, of the state or whether it was you're sending this to the IRS or whatever, that's the principal. That's the one that you're contracting to, the one that you're trying to give the notice to and make sure that they comply with it, they acknowledge it, and they have a legal duty to respond or they accept it. The principal is the, the entity that you're not noticing. The agent is just the individual employee who opens up the letter, okay? So when you say notice to agent, notice to the employee, is the same thing as notice to the principal, the entire Secretary of State of California, and you're saying that the notice to the entire Secretary of State of California is also notice to the agent, that just covers yourself and says that, you know, all right, you, you know, you can't say, you, they can't come back later and say, well, we just had an employee open up the letter and it, we, you know, the, the Secretary of State of California never really knew, you know, you know, we never really had the ability to really, you know, you know, understand this or read this. It was never given to us. Hey, I notified one of your employees. That's your fucking problem. That's it. Okay, so that's what that does. It covers your legal basis. And then it says trustee and secured party, your name, 
without prejudice and without recourse, you're, without prejudicing your rights, uh, your signature, your date, and then you also say that you're an authorized representative of your all capital letters name. So that's the, one of the main, it's a simple letter, it fits on one page, you know, you obviously you must send it with something like a certified mail tracking and keep records of those. And we post the certified mail labels onto your UCC ones after these are mailed too. We do a very comprehensive involved, you know, UCC posting process. There might be multiple UCC filings that are done. The state that we do it in is very particular based on you. It's not just like, oh, you know, we had people uh, shopping around. There's other SPC things people found. They say, oh, they say you have to file all your UCCs in the state of Washington and all these different theories that people have. We personalize uh, what is the best place for you to do UCC filing based on a lot of different factors. So when we have you fill out the information, we give a recommendation of where it's going to be the best place to do it and then we look through all your application and your uh, your data sheet and we hand select the UCC region based on our experience based on my mentors based on the successes that people have with this is very specific we can't just say everybody file in the state of Washington or whatever these other people are saying so but you're 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 filing you're filing that and we're filing dozens of pages on there. There are dozens of pages that are posted on there. A lot of these affidavits and some of these trust documents and these certified mail receipts and different things like this that you showing that you've given notice of this to Secretary of State and to the IRS and to Washington DC. A lot of these things are posted on your UCC. So again, a lot of people that come to us who have done this in the past, they were taught, oh you file UCC and it's one page or it's two pages. Uh, the average number of pages Sometimes it's a, little, a page or two less or a page or two more. We got 32, 33 pages that need to be posted on your UCC, whether it's on the UCC-1 or an amendment to it, which is a UCC-3, or whatever you know, other UCC-3s or amendments. You can always keep adding new information or editing mistakes that you've made or deleting entire um, sections on your UCC posting. Um, by doing a UCC three, so you can do it as you can do as many UCC threes as you like for the rest of your life to fix, change, edit, or so on and so forth. But there's a lot of stuff that we need to post on there because it's all tying everything together and creating that prima facie case of who you are, what you've done, and so on and so forth. Again, based on your first impression, accepted as correct until proven proven otherwise. So again, don't think that they're absolutely going to just you know, lie down and let you do anything and go off there. You know, just because you're an SP, you become a secured party and you do this whole process doesn't mean that you can just walk past, um, you know, police and just smoke marijuana in their face and blow it in their face and be stupid and know that he's going to jump and pounce on you and arrest you and charge you with, you know, unlawful possession of marijuana, right? I know it's legal in a lot of states, but obviously still you wouldn't blow it in his face. But you, I'm trying to make a point. Don't go out there and do stupid things. Don't go out there and be overconfident that, oh, if you get stopped and frisked or a normal person would get arrested, you're not going to get arrested. That is, has been reported to be the case in, in, in many instances, but it's not 100%. And I would just expect that, just like anyone else, you would be arrested for the same stuff. It's possible they punch you in a computer 
and they and if it's low level stuff and if you and especially if you start to assert your rights that they will let you go but i've heard cases where they let people they started asserting you know i conditionally accept this and that and i'm a secure party you know i have jurisdiction over me blah, blah blah and i've seen people be let go but then 10 months later they formally charged them and, and issued an arrest warrant and charged them and brought them in okay so it doesn't make you invincible but it makes you so that if you develop a situation civil or criminal you can handle it and all your property is your property if it's a civil they can't get they can't take your money if you defend yourself and utilize this and utilize your filings and showing all those pages that were posted on the UCC and that you sent these notices to the Secretary of State and, and you have the security agreement and you've done all these things and you have reorganized and you're the trustee of your legal name trust. If you show all these things, you can defend a civil action and prevent a lawsuit no matter how high the amount of the money is, you can prevent the lawsuit because this protects the assets of your trust because you have a security agreement in place for $100 million that is nunk pro tunk to your birth date, so uh, or to your birthday or your 18th birthday, because you can't contract between before your 18th birthday anyway. So any contracts before then are null and void anyway. Uh, so or any contracts that are not in your best interest are null and void anyway. So you're nunk pro tunking back to your 18th birthday, right? That <clears throat> you, the living man in private has a fir the first and only superior lien hold interest over all of the all capital letters property anyway. So that protects you from civil lawsuits as well. But the civil and the criminal are all tied together because a criminal is just an escalated civil action where they're repossessing the automobile when you don't make your car payment and the automobile, the property, instead of the automobile, the property is actually your body. And so that's what they're doing there. It's a security agreement that the government has over people and over people's bodies that was created with the birth certificate. So that's the reason why we are taking control and basically canceling all those contracts, the birth certificate contract that gave them authority over your body and your property and your life and your future and your offspring. That contract, the social security contract, all those contracts are kind, they're, they're null and void. They those documents are still there registered in the government system, but you're putting modifications and amendments over to them with these public notices saying what they are and what they're not. Okay, and unless rebutted and proven otherwise, this is what they are. And there are maxims of law, and there are, you know, if something is fraud, then you can step in and do certain things. So there are maxims of law and court cases and definitions and equity and common law and all these things that put together, whereas you can stop people from assuming that they have control over your trust and from them assuming that they have control to repossess your body or take your property or tax you for you know certain things so <clears throat> that's I guess we'll do another audio soon on what you know people can do if they get into trouble, whether it's a civil or criminal situation. But I mean, obviously, you can contact us at any time. You can call us, and you can call our number, and you can you know we're here one on one to answer questions in private, confidential setting to assist people and uh, bring people. I'm, you know, we're never going to be able to do all the audio recordings to get to the point where everyone is self-sufficient to do everything you know themselves. 
uh, 110% on you know every situation, every question answered, every what you know, you can always call us and ask us for help. We encourage it, okay? And don't feel shy about like, oh, I don't want to call you. Let me send you an email. We don't answer emails. We get hundreds of emails a day. So if you're a client, we have client email addresses that we check and respond to, you know, virtually every single day. But we have a main email. You might be getting, um, you might be uh, getting this audio recording on our main email address, which is contact at understandcontractlawnewin.com. And there are months in a row where we never check those emails. And if we do, you know, we may not answer all of them. We may just say, "Oh, people are asking a lot of questions about this. It's a good idea to do an audio recording about this at some point in the future." If it's something that you personally need help with question answered you have a situation give us a call don't be shy don't send me an email back because I'm not checking those emails there's hundreds of emails if you care and you're serious and you really want to fix the situation give us a call the phone number is 505-340-3632 okay make sure that you've looked at some of the information on the site so you have clear concise and intelligent questions and you know we spent hundreds of hours putting the website together you don't have to look at every single section and dig into all the past archives but look at the main stuff watch the main webinar replay on the home page look at the different products under the products and see what we offer and then make a list of clear and concise questions and calls and ask us do you guys do this? What do you guys charge for this? Can you guys help this? Have you ever helped people with this? Do you have any advice or recommendations for this? You know, we don't all 100%, you know, you know, charge everybody just for providing a little bit of guidance and help and answering a few questions here and there. But if you want a lot, if you want to hire someone, if you want a lot of personalized help, um, we're available to it. So give us a call. Let's start the dialogue, start the conversation and um, see uh, whether we just push you in the put you in the right direction or whether we give you some things that can help you or whether um, we wind up helping you you know hands-on rolling up our sleeves and working together with you whatever it is give us a call okay but look at the stuff on the site particularly look at the webinar replay understand the this information obviously listen to this audio if you've gotten this far and also just also please look at www.what is a secured party.com okay www.whatisasecuredparty.com and that's i think it's like a 14 15 page document um, it's not a whole website it's just a pdf document uploaded at that web domain okay so that you can just cut through the there's no fancy graphics on there there's no fancy flashy you know anything i'm a very cut to the chase show me the meat and potatoes just show me what works show me what works now show me what not to do show me what to do and show me how to get there with ease and grace with as least problems as possible and just tell me what i need to get there that's that's where i'm from that's what i do that's what i've been you know that's the character that's bit that i've molded into over the course of my life that's me some people like it some people don't like it okay if you're looking for someone to cry on your shoulder for three hours and give you emotional support that's not me i don't have the capacity to do that to you know people i meet over the internet you know 
I have a few friends in my life that I can squeeze a little bit of time to do things like that, but um, and loved ones and family, but you know when it's needed. But I'm a very cut to the chase, just show me what to do type of guy. So if you like that attitude, we might be able to work together very well. Okay. So, um, but when you call, make sure you have a pen and paper. Make sure you know you've got clear and concise questions. I don't want to hear a whole rambling or, and it's not just always me that's going to answer the telephone. I have uh, supportive, friendly, intelligent, well-trained team members uh, that are answering all the plethora of phone calls that we, you know, that we get. So please um, talk with them. Don't call and demand that you talk with Tyler because I don't do most of the phone calls. But um, when you speak with one of us, make sure that you have clear and concise questions, intelligently formulated, they're short, and you can just ask what you want to know, okay? Um, sometimes, you know, we can say, oh, okay, tell us more about that, tell us what happened, and you can tell us the story of what happened within reason, not going on for two hours, only covering the important facts, you know? <laughs> so we encourage that. Give us a call. If it's going to be a long call, we really encourage to do a paid coaching call consultation. If you're not sure yet, you can just give us a call. You don't need to go online and pay if you are trying to call and ask us or you think it's going to be a short five or ten minute conversation. But if it's going to be, if you know, if we know, or if the call starts to get into and it gets longer and longer and very long, then you know, please respect our time, you know, support our organization. Um, we're expanding and growing more staff uh, every month to handle and be able to help more amounts of people. Um, we all do this full time, so we get full time. You know, we all do this full time, so we need to live and pay our bills. So um, please consider paying for a consultation, especially if you know you have an important issue. You know you really need to go into a lot of detail, especially if you have documents that you want us to review ahead of time. You know, things like that. Um, but you can certainly call first for the for the initial five or ten minutes, no charge, no obligation, and you can call and just you know just double check about anything you want to double check about. Oh, can you guys help with this? Should I bother paying for a consultation? That's perfectly fine. Should I bother going online? You know, it's a little expensive. It's a hundred dollars or for half hour or two hundred dollars for an hour. That's fine. You can call and check. You know, I'm trying to see if it's worth it for me to pay for a consultation. Do you guys help with A, B, and C? I studied things on your website. I listened to your audios. I um, read the what is a securedparty.com thing, and I don't have the answer to this. Very likely that there's going to be a ton of things that are not answered or explained, but people have a lot of, you know, there's an infinite number of questions that can be formulated. So give us a call when you've reviewed that information. What is a securedparty.com? The webinar replay, the information on here. Give us a call. Again, the phone number is 505. 340-3632. Now when you call, and we're always changing this and trying to we're always, you know, changing things around to try to make our um, ability to help people more efficient, help more people in less time, spend less time repeating ourselves on the phone saying the same things to lots of people that can be, you know, posted on a recording. So when you call depending on what time and if this changes going on into the next year, there may be a recording, okay? There may be an English lady saying, greetings, thank you for calling, understand contract law, and you win.com, yada, 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 okay? Please, if it's your first time calling especially, 
listen to her and respect her and t jot a couple of notes down. The recorder, the, re the automated recording may go on for a minute or two or longer when it's your first time calling. And it's going to give you certain extension numbers and please write down those extension numbers and then when you call back later you can skip the recording and you can just hit whatever extension number of the you know department that you want to reach but when you call for the first time or the first couple of, couple of times please listen to the recording and as things go on you can certainly just hit the the, the, the number on there and punch in and skip and go right to either the same individual that you were speaking with prior on the prior phone call or the same department right we have a sales slash answering people's questions slash consulting department and then we have a department for people who have already officially paid for consultations and it's a separate department it's a separate extension number then we have a separate extension number for people dealing with foreclosures then we have a separate extension number for, I think, uh, the line of credit and credit repair. We have separate extension numbers for other things. And we have also private extension numbers that are not even, that you don't find out about unless we tell you. So that we can keep certain people in the background, quietly, efficiently working on particular projects, on particular people's you know, court cases or, uh, you know, helping them to eliminate certain debts or helping them in certain situations. People need to be quiet without the phone ringing all the time. Certain people, okay? So we have other people that will just answer the phone and return calls all day long. But we have other departments of people who get a minimal amount of calls and almost nobody knows their extension numbers unless they're their particular client. So I hope that that makes sense to you. I hope that the people that are business savvy people are saying, oh, okay, you know, this is really well, you know, put together. He, you know, he's, you know, he's trying to be very efficient and help the most amount of people. I like that. I respect that. I'm grateful for that. I'm glad I found understandcontractlawnyouwin.com because we are really trying our best and I love feedback, but we are always trying our best, we're always trying to improve, and we're always trying to provide people with the best product, the best service, the most effective product, the most effective service, and in the most efficient manner that helps the most amount of people. And, you know, that's basically it. So listen to um, all the other recordings that I send out as well over the course of time. You don't have to wait to call us to have listened. You don't have to listen to 20, you know, the next, you know, 15, you know, audio recordings that I send out in order to call in order to, you know, to call us. But, you know, if you're not sure what your questions are, then maybe listen to, you know, a few other recordings before, you know, and, and make a lit, make a, make a list and try to like narrow down what your questions are before you do call us. But obviously, if you have a pressing emergency situation, court date a certain time, this type of situation, you know, uh, you're in major trouble, just call us right away, okay? Once again, 505-340-3632. We look forward to working with you, and uh, we will, you'll, I'll be talking to you soon.